Well, y'all keep practicing. Y'all going to get there one day. <laughs> y'all know I'm joking. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy that. Mark chapter 9 is where we are. Mark chapter number 9. We're about halfway through this journey of, of um, preaching through Mark's gospel. Today we find ourselves in verse 2 through, I think I'm going to go through about 9 of chapter 9. So here we go. Y'all ready? Boy, it got quiet in here all of a sudden, didn't it? Man, I guess so. <laughs> all right, here we go. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. New American Standard Bible says this beginning in verse number 2 of Mark chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Well, mountaintop experiences. I don't know where that terminology originates, but we use this idea of being on a mountaintop or being in a valley to designate two different positions in which we sometimes find ourselves spiritually. And you know that we use the mountaintop terminology to kind of signify a spiritual high that rejuvenates and pumps us up, gives us a shot of spiritual adrenaline, if you will. And on the other hand, a valley experience is just the opposite. It's one of those hard places that kind of zaps the life out of you. Uh, where you don't want to be. Well, if there ever was a mountaintop experience described in the Bible, this was a mountaintop experience, both in the literal sense as well as the spiritual sense because these boys were on a high mountain, literally, geographically, but man, how would you have liked to have been a fly on the wall at this Bible conference, huh? I mean, my goodness, you got Moses and Elijah and Jesus all in a huddle talking. Now, I would have liked to have listened in on that conversation. And here the disciples were, and they were doing just that. So a mountaintop experience indeed. Well, you know, the thing about mountaintops and valleys is that they are polar opposites. They are extremes. And I think this text is going to show us several things about mountaintop experiences, but one of them is you don't want to really hang out on the mountaintop, nor do you want to hang out in the valley, but the goal of life should be to seek kind of that level plane somewhere in between. Now, I've kind of broken this section or this, uh, this passage up uh, on our outline in two ways. I want us, number one, to look at mountaintop experiences in general. And then I want us to look specifically at this mountaintop experience and see what we can walk away from with today that would help us to live maybe 
on a level playing spiritually and being a little bit more consistent. So here we go. Notice something about mountaintop experiences. I think we can make a generalization from this passage and say that mountaintop experiences have common characteristics. So what are some of the common characteristics of mountaintop experiences both then and now? With the disciples in Jesus' day as it is with us in our day. I mean, come on. You've had a mountaintop experience, right? It's just part of the ebb and flow of life. You've been in the valley as well, right? So let's look at these mountaintop experiences now and make some generalizations about common characteristics that the Bible affirms that mountaintop experiences share. Number one, mountaintop experiences usually happen in solitude. In solitude. Now check this out. The Bible tells us here that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. I think the old King James says they went apart. So here's the thing about mountaintop experiences in general. Normally mountaintop experiences do not happen in a crowd. Now I'm not saying they can't. I mean, I, uh, one of the defining moments in my life was a mountaintop experience when I was sitting in the middle of about 2,200 people at Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. But still, even though there was 2,200 people in the room with me, it was almost as if God put me in a cone and I was there by myself. See, mountaintop experiences normally happen in solitude. Jesus took these guys up on a high mountain and there were only Peter, James, and John. He called them apart. Now, let me make some, some, some more generalities about that. I think simply from that we can say that mountaintop experiences are probably something that we should not seek. And I know a lot of folk that do just that. They are kind of spiritual junkies. And they move from one high to the next high. They're going to, from here to there, searching for that place where everything's jumping, where everything's popping, where everything's happening, because they always want to live on a mountaintop. But can I say to you that they're probably not to be sought. As a matter of fact, these boys didn't seek this mountaintop experience. They were selected out by Jesus and called apart. They're kind of by invitation only. Do you see that? So here's what we can deduce from all of this. Since they normally happen in solitude, you can probably expect to have a mountaintop experience when you are alone with Him. So let me ask you this. Do you have a normal place? Do you have a normal pattern where you yourself withdraw from the hustle and bustle of life from the press and pressure of everything going on in your world to a place where there's quiet and there's solitude, where you can be alone with no one but Him. You see, that's probably where you're going to have your mountaintop experience. It's not going to be in the hustle and bustle. It's not going to be in the rat race. It's going to be in your quiet place and your quiet time. So what I'm saying for you is if you don't have that quiet place built into your already busy schedule, you may want to do that. Because that's probably where you're going to have these mountaintop spiritually rejuvenating types of, 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 of experiences that tend to give you a shot of spiritual adrenaline. Mountaintop experiences have common characteristics. Number one, they normally happen in solitude. You see that. Peter, James, and John were on the top of the mountain with Jesus because Jesus invited them. Before I run, let me just stop and say here, it's always bothered me as to why this mountain wasn't crowded with people. Have you ever thought about it? Because they've been walking with Jesus long enough now to know that every time he goes to a mountain, something happens, right? Every time he retreats and, and, and has prayer time, he gets along with the Father, something happens. 
So why wasn't that mountain full? As a matter of fact, why wasn't there at least nine other disciples up there? And there's been a lot of theories offered because of it. None of them really seem to satisfy me, and it's simply just a mystery. But I think we can at least say this. Mountaintop experiences don't depend on me. They depend on Him. And He chose these three as He often did for some reason. Now, we don't know why. It could just be conjecture. It might be that these three had a greater capacity than the other nine. I don't know. But anyway... Jesus was selective himself about who he took to the mountaintop. So here's what I have to ask myself. If I'm in a crowd and Jesus is about to go to the mountain, would he select me as one of those whom he'd take with him? If not, why not? Were the others preoccupied with something and they would have missed it? It would have been wasted on. We, we don't know what the answer is, but nonetheless, it's food for thought. So number one, mountaintop experiences normally happen in solitude. Find you a quiet place. Meet Jesus there on a regular basis. And you might find that the frequency of mountaintop experience increase in your walk. Number two, they are often preceded by spiritual slumber. Now, I want you to check this out. Look with me in in Luke's gospel because Luke records this and he gives a few details that Mark does not. So check out what it is that that Luke says in his account of the transfiguration mountaintop experience in chapter 9 and verse number 32. Notice what Luke tells us. You see, this meeting had been going on. Elijah and Moses show up. They are meeting with Jesus in glory. I mean, they are radiant, all three of them. And notice what happens. Verse number 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. My goodness. And you know, they had a problem doing that. I mean, again, uh, this is not a a one-time occurrence. Uh, you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, was, he took them with him and he was praying and he was wrestling until the sweat turned into blood on his face and he comes back and finds them and what are they doing? They're sleeping. So here these guys are, probably one of the most important meetings that have ever transpired on this planet was a conference between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah And here's Peter sawing logs. Son, he's snoring. As were the other two as well. I can't help help but wonder, what did they miss? What went on while they were sleeping? Because they just woke up and caught the tail end of it. You see, there's something about us that just makes us go to sleep when important things are happening spiritually. Have you ever noticed that? You know, it used to bother me to no end. When I was a young preacher and full of P and V, I, I used to say stuff that used to get me in trouble all the time. If you don't know what that is, see me at the church, I'll tell you. <laughs> when I was a young preacher, nothing would make me matter than an old boy come, sit right up front and sleep while I was preaching. I mean, from a human perspective, I don't know if there's anything that can be more disrespectful for somebody, no matter how boring they are, right? I mean, at least act like you're interested. But you know, I mean, come on, I, I, you, you, Colin's afraid to take his eye off of me because he knows what might happen to him up here. He's been beat up from one end to the other. I mean, I'm just an animated preacher. You know, for me, preaching is a full contact sport. Hey, let's get all in, right? But it used to bother me that there'd be some guys come, and I mean, they wouldn't just sleep. They would snore. <laughs> you could hear them snoring. And I would just get all mad and say, listen here. If you're going to come on Sunday morning to church and sleep, do both of us a favor and just stay your little lazy hiney in the bed because all you're doing is, is distracting everybody. Now, that don't bother me anymore. You know why it don't bother me? Now, please don't come and sleep and test me on it, but <laughs> I'm telling you, it don't bother me like it used to because here's the thing. If folk can go to sleep on Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, are you with me? 
It doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to keep you awake. But have you just noticed that there's something about the flesh that wants to make us slumber and sleep when something spiritually important is taking place? It just does. That's why Jesus says, for the spirit is willing, but what? But the flesh is weak. So mountaintop experiences, maybe they are so rare in our lives because we are so sleepy spiritually most of the time. Am I right? So here these old boys were. They were sleeping on, uh, on a mountaintop or sleeping through a mountaintop experience. All right, number next. They usually happen in solitude. They're often preceded by spiritual slumber. And I think Mark's gospel also tells us that they are for savoring, not for sharing. I mean, here's what it's for. It's for your benefit, kind of. It's to rejuvenate you spiritually. And it's not going to mean near as much to somebody else as it did to you. Have you ever had that experience? We've talked about this before, how when you have some fabulous experience that man just does something for you spiritually, the more you share it, what happens to the value of it? Doesn't it seem to diminish? And before long you're left with nothing but an empty shell. Now notice what it was that Jesus told these guys and here there's a very specific purpose in it but I think the principle still applies. Jesus told them in verse 9, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. So I think we can generalize from this experience and from what Jesus says that mountaintop experiences are for savoring and not for sharing. Okay, here we go. Number next. Mountaintop experiences, they usually happen in solitude. They're often preceded by spiritual slumber. They are for savoring and not for sharing. And then next, they are secondary to the Word. Secondary to the Word. Now, I want you to see this from the mouth of Peter himself. And, and, and I want us to get this real good. Man, I am so grateful that Christianity is a relationship with God. It is an experiential relationship with God. Am I right? It is. But can I tell you how it normally takes place? Normally, the experience follows the Word. And when we get that turned around, when we start seeking an experience and then we try to let the Word explain it, we normally end up somewhere on a sidetrack. But here's what will happen. You'll have more mountaintop experiences when you draw away with Jesus and there's nobody but you and Him and His Word. I want to tell you that's where I find it more than any time. And man, I want to tell you I find it to the point that it pumps me up until you know I've told you before that we had to draw a hard fast rule in my house that I can't be studying the Bible after 9 or 10 o'clock. Because son, it'll pump me up. And I'll be preaching to Heather and Louie and Wyatt Johnson, my other little bird dog. And that doesn't go very well at 9 and 10 around my house. Now, Louie's under extreme conviction. Heather, not so much. <laughs> so look at what Peter says. And I want, you to, I want you to get this. Mountaintop experiences are not what's going to make you a better disciple. They are not what's going to grow you into who Jesus wants you to be. You know what is? The Word. And so many folk are running to and fro again seeking experiences while their Bible sits on the coffee table collecting dust. And that does not profit us spiritually. Now I want you to check out what Peter said. Uh, you may want to find this with me because here's Peter giving commentary on this very on this very incident. This is what he's talking about. The context behind 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 19 is the transfiguration experience where he and James and John were on a mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and he slept through the first 45 minutes of the meeting and only caught the last five minutes. Huh? <laughs> it reminds me of the guy that was sleeping through church. He constantly slept through church. 
So one day, right about in the middle of the church, his buddy gave him the elbow like Miss Maryveen just said you're supposed to do to folk when they're snoring next to you. His buddy gave him the elbow and said, Man, wake up. The preacher called on you to pray the benediction. And the old boy stood up and started praying a benediction right in the middle of the service. Just didn't. <laughs> That's kind of the way Peter and James and John were. Now here's, here's Peter's commentary on that, on, that, uh, on that situation. In verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says. Now this is a much older, much wiser, much more spiritually mature Peter speaking here, okay? He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Are you with me? Do you see this? It's got transfiguration written all over it, don't it? This is the, that's the, the situation that Peter was describing. But look what he says in verse 19. Hey, that was a mountaintop experience. Peter never forgot it as you will never forget yours. But Peter quickly follows that up with something that's more important. Look what he says. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Do you see what he just said? He said, man, that experience was cool. It was neat. It was spiritually edifying. It was a a spiritual high. It was a mountaintop experience. But that is secondary to the word of God. That's what he says. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, yeah, mountaintop experiences are fine, but they do not compare to the edification one receives by taking in the meat of God's Word. So, Peter says, man, an experience, oh, I'm so glad for it, but God's Word, there's no comparison. You see, an experience is subjective. God's Word is objective. An experience can be often misunderstood. This can be properly understood. So Peter says, oh yeah, man, that was a great time up on that mountain. I wish I hadn't slept through most of it. But still, it's secondary to the Word of God. Can I say to you that nothing will pump you up like God's Word? When the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and He puts the crosshairs on your life and you live between those crosshairs where the Logos, the eternal Word, comes, becomes Rhema, a word for your specific time and juncture in life, there is nothing that will edify your soul like that. That's why Paul says, Now I commend you to God and the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's why Jesus said, For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is nothing that has primacy over the good old-fashioned Word of God. Check it out. Peter says about this mountaintop experience that it's secondary to the Word. So more generalities about God's Word. Let's get back on track now. They usually happen in solitude or about mountaintop experiences. They normally happen in solitude. They are often preceded by spiritual slumber. They are for savoring, not sharing. They are secondary for God's Word. And number two, they prepare us for serving at the bottom. At the bottom of what? Well, at the bottom of the mountain. No, I didn't say valley. You don't go from a mountaintop to a valley normally. But notice what these boys did. They came down off of the mountain and beginning next Sunday we have another pericope or another story about what they encountered soon as they came down off the mountain. You see, when you come down off the mountain you enter back into the normal routine of mundane life with all of its problems and pressures and trials. But that mountaintop experience should prepare you for serving there at the foot of the mountain where 99% of life takes place. So check out what it is that the Bible says they did. The Bible says in verse number 9, as they were coming down. See, you can't live on a mountaintop. 
As a matter of fact, that was Peter's mistake. Look, look, what, he, look what he tried to do. When he finally woke up, wiped the sleep out of his eyes, in verse number 5, Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know what Peter was saying? I mean, why do you make a booth? Why do you make a tabernacle? So you got a place to stay. So what he was saying in effect is let's just stay up here. But God never intended them to live their life on a remote, isolated mountaintop having a spiritual high all the time. God intended for that mountaintop experience to prepare them for what they were going to find Monday morning down on the level plain where folk have problems and ministry and life takes place. So it's interesting. And I've always kind of thought that there had to be a connection there. As soon as Peter got off base theologically and thought, you know, I'm just going to stay here. And man, who can blame him? Wouldn't you want to stay there too? You know, I mean, we all want to live on the mountaintop. But that's not God's intention. So Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three little houses. First off, I don't think Moses needs a shelter of a house anymore, right? But Peter's getting, I mean, Peter was all discombobulated. He just woke up. He's wiping sleep out of his eyes. Got drool running down the corner of his beards. He says, let me build them something, Lord. Let, let, let's build them a tabernacle so we can just stay here. And when he got all base theologically, boop, that was the end of the meeting. It was over with. I think that was God's way of saying, son, you're not to live on a mountaintop. You're not to live with the rush of spiritual adrenaline going through your veins all the time. Sometimes you've got to get down where life takes place and live just out of faithfulness to me and to my word. And that's what these mountaintop experiences prepare us to do. They prepare us for what takes place on the level plain at the foot of the mountain. And you see, isn't that really what Sunday does? Isn't that what, hey, it doesn't matter how loud we shout, how high we jump on Sunday, if Monday we can't serve where we live Monday through Saturday. So here we go. Mountaintop experiences. They prepare us for serving at the bottom. And then number next, and my final characteristic here, is when the spectacular is over, He remains. Check this out. Look what, look what the Scripture tells us. The Bible tells us that when Peter said this, let me build a tabernacle, one for you and one for Moses and, 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 and one for Elijah. The Bible says that a cloud formed overshadowing them and the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. You know, something amazing... Uh, one of my profs years ago did a pretty extensive survey among Southern Baptists, and, and here's what he asked. He said, of all of the Bible, who is your favorite character? Who is it that grabs your attention the most, and who would you most want to emulate of all the characters in the Bible? Now, he asked that to Southern Baptists, okay? I, I don't know, you may have been a part of that survey. It was a wide survey. Stop and think about it. Of all, the of all the characters in the Bible, who is it that's your favorite, basically? Who grabs your attention? Who would you want to be like? And he compiled all the answers. Guess who came in almost last? Say it. Somebody did. Jesus. Why in the world is that? Because somehow or another, we think we can relate to a Jonah <laughs> or an Elijah or a Moses. And you see, basically, that's what Peter was doing here. Peter was kind of putting Moses and Elijah on the same plane with Jesus. And that's again when it all fell down. That's when the cloud came. That's when they disappeared. And that's when the Lord God spoke to them from this theophany, this representation of this cloud and said, This is my beloved son. You hear Him. You see what He's saying? He's saying there is nobody to compare with. By the way, 
I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write another book. I, this one's going to be called Church, Church Billboard Heresy. And the good part is, I don't even have to write anything. All I got to do is have a pen and piece of paper and go around and just write down stupid stuff on church signs. This heresy, right? I mean, all I got to do is drive through Bonifay once or twice a week and I'll have a 500-page book. My gosh, I wish folk could quit putting stuff. Man, I was coming down here this morning, I told Heather, I said, heresy. I, I just have this heresy radar, you know? <laughs> You've probably seen it too. Here's the church sign, here's what it says. Who will be in heaven because of you? I'm glad y'all are laughing. Because here's the answer, Daddy-O. Nobody. And listen here, everybody who's in heaven are there because of what He did on Calvary's cross. Nothing I can do gets anybody there. Everybody that's there is there because He bought them. He paid for their sin debt. He died for them on Calvary's cross. If somebody's there because I'm there, that means I'm a co-redemptor, right? Hello? Let me just, from saying that, I feel like I need to hide. Where's that lightning bolt coming from? There is nobody on the same footing with Him. And you see, that's kind of what was going on here. And that's what the Lord's saying. This is my beloved son here. Hey, as soon as Peter got all based theologically, guess what happened to Elijah and Moses? Boop, they're gone. There's nobody on the same place. Yeah, that's right. Ooh, yeah, he, look, it's raining. See, that statement, that little statement. Lord, you know I was just making an illustration there, huh? If it starts lightning, you can't hide. I can get on a chair and God still hit me, you know? I mean, you can't hide. <laughs> I'd try, though. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the text here. <laughs> anyway, coming in a bookstore near you very soon. <laughs> when the spectacular is over, guess who's still there? Now look what happens. Here's what happened. After Peter made all of these, had all of these misconceptions, the Bible says a cloud form. The voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen, and, listen to him and look at verse 8. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except... Hey, when all the spiritual fanaticism is over with, when all the spectacular, when all the glory, all the flashing lights, all the lightning, the thunder, all the voices from heaven, all the theophanic representations, when all of that's over with, guess who's there? Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to hear anything. You don't have to see anything. He's with you. He's always there. Behold, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for I am with you. What else do you need other than the presence of Jesus. Dr. John has an ID that comes through when he sends me a WhatsApp message and his ID is a picture of a card that had a great influence, impact on his life one time and here's what the card says. Jesus plus what equals enough? And what's the answer to that? Nothing. Nothing. If, if there's something that you put in the blank, I gotta have Jesus and this, and we're off base theologically. All right, I got to run. I got to run. I got to run. Look here, I'm eating up all my time. Mountaintop experiences, number one, have common characteristics. But number two, mountaintop experiences show his essential character. You see, here's what they do. They should make us love Jesus a little bit more. They should make us know him a little bit better. They should draw us to him just a little more closely. That's what they are designed to do. So notice how they show his essential character. Number one, they show, it shows his essential identity. And notice what the Bible says. I, I, I like this, how it describes it. Jesus took Peter and James and John with him, brought them to a high mountain, and look in the end of that verse. And he was transfigured before them. Here's the Greek word that's translated transfigured. It's the word metamorphosis. 
Now, let's go back to fifth grade biology, can we? That's where we all learn that word metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is a great change that takes place. And normally when you're studying metamorphosis, you're studying caterpillars and butterflies, right? Now, how is it that that caterpillar is able to go into solitude in a cocoon and a couple weeks later, however long it takes, he comes out as a beautiful monarch or whatever kind of butterfly he, met him, he, he morphs into. How does he do that? Let me tell you how. It's going to get real technical, okay? Y'all ready? All right. He turns into a butterfly because that caterpillar already had butterfly essence in him. See what I'm saying? He just changed outward appearance. His outward appearance became in tune with his inner essence. So this is exactly what the scripture is saying about Jesus. His outward appearance reflected his inner nature. And who is he on the inside? You see, on the outside, he's a Jewish peasant. On the outside, he's a carpenter's son. On the outside, he's the son of Mary. But on the inside, listen to me, get this. On the inside, he is El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh God, 100%. And the only thing that kept Yahweh God contained in him was a thin veil of flesh. And it's almost as if here on this mountain, he kind of let the flesh down and the inner nature morphed out and they saw him as who he is in his inner identity and that is God in the flesh. Isn't that crazy? But they saw him as who he was. He metamorphed. He changed. His outward appearance changed. Even his clothes began to radiate. Hey man, this I have a professor that talks about God being the radioactive God because he glows. Just white, hot purity and holiness. And here he changed in front of them. He, he metamorphed and his outward appearance became congruent with his inner identity. And they saw him as who he was. That is God. So mountaintop experiences show his essential character. Number one, his essential identity. But number two, his essential accomplishment. Notice what the topic of conversation was with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They were talking about his accomplishment. As a matter of fact, Luke uses that exact word in his account. They were talking about his accomplishment. Now here's the thing. You see, death is not just something that's talked about as an accomplishment, is it not? I mean, that's not too much of an accomplishment. Uh, everybody's going to do it. You don't have to do anything to do it. I mean, it's just it's not an accomplishment. But here's the word that's used in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel about this very thing that he was to accomplish. They were talking to him about his... Does anybody know what it is? Where are my Bible scholars? Nope. Here's the, here's the Greek word. <laughs> the Greek word is exodon, exodus. They were talking with him about his exodus. And you see, that means something. Because he wasn't just dying on a cross. And you see, here's, here, here's what was going on. Here, here's, why, here's why Moses and Elijah were there. Because he is the fulfillment of the visitors, that is Moses, Moses and Elijah's ministry. He's the ultimate fulfillment. Remember Jesus said himself uh, that, he, that the law and the prophets, uh, he, he's the end of the law and the prophets, not the end, he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Uh, he talked in several places about the congruency between his life and ministry and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So here they were, they were representatives of the law and the prophets and Jesus bringing them both together and fulfilling both of them perfectly. But notice something else, not only is he the fulfillment of the visitor's ministry, but he's the end of our misery. 
He's the end of it. And the reason why is because He is our exodus. You see, just as Moses led the people of God out of Egyptian slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey, friend, that's what takes place when the Son of God dawns in our hearts, when we've been born again, when we place our faith in Him. He sets us free, and I am free indeed. No more bondage. No more slavery. He is the end of my misery. Why? Because He is my exodus. He led me from darkness into light. He led me to slavery into liberty. He has led me from sinfulness into holiness. He is our exodus. Wow. See, He's redeemed us. He's bought us through His accomplishment. And Moses and Elijah were there talking with him. And the topic of their conversation was his exodus. It's pretty cool, man. I'd have liked to have heard that. I wish Peter would have been awake so he could have told us more about what he heard. Check it out. Not only is he, does this mountaintop experience reveal his accomplishment, but it also reveals his ultimate purpose for us. On your outline, I call it our destiny. Because see, just as he was... Metamorpho, just as he was changed, that's his destiny for us as well. So how does that take place? Well, let me show you how it takes place. Here's how you can be a butterfly instead of a caterpillar. Check it out. I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. Look what it is that Paul says. Paul says, beginning there, and he's talking about the Jewish people reading Moses, and this is what he says in verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Another way to translate that Greek sentence, I love it, is where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. That's a little bit different, isn't it? And it can be translated that way. Now look in verse number 18. Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And see what he's talking about? He just talked about them reading Moses. So now when he talks about the mirror, he picks up the analogy that James uses in his epistle, calling, referring to the Word of God as a mirror. So here we are. Remember, mountaintop experience is secondary to the Word of God. Here's why. Because this Word of God right here has the ability to do this. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, Lord are being transformed. Guess what word it is? Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Guess what Paul just said? He said... Just as the Lord was transformed, just as metamorphosis took place in Him, you, when you were born again, God put His seed in you. Peter says you have become partakers of the divine nature. The essence is there. Hear me. Look at me. The essence of God is dwelling in you. Now, unlike Jesus, we do a pretty good job of keeping it contained, don't we? I mean, our flesh keeps it covered up. But here's what he says. Here's what Peter's saying. When you read God's Word, this book has the ability, when mingled by faith in the hearer, this Word has the ability to cause you to undergo a metamorphosis and all of a sudden you don't look like you used to. You're different. You're being transformed. And here's what he said from glory to glory. Hey man, <laughs> I'm nowhere near what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, huh? And it's not because anything other than God's Word doing what God's Word does, and that causes my outward appearance to reflect the inner nature which God has put within me. God, give me the ability to stick with the stuff long enough for it to really take good hold. You know what I'm saying? Now stop and think, do you know anybody that meets that criteria? 
I mean, we've got some good candidates right here. If it wasn't for me embarrassing snot out of them, snot out of them I'd call them by name. Because, son, they are being metamorphized. <laughs> That's the Richie version of that past tense Greek, huh? I mean, you've got to put an ED on it. Even if it's Greek, it's got to have an ED on it. They are, they, are, they are undergoing metamorphosis. They aren't near the person they used to be. They are miles away from that. They have been transformed from one degree of glory to another. So here's what he's saying. Here's what his destiny is for us. His destiny is, is or, or his purpose is that we reach our essential destiny. And how do we do that? We do it in continuing sanctification. Continuing sanctification. That means I have a quiet place where I go in solitude, where I meet with Jesus Christ, and I've got His Word in front of me. And the Bible says when we do that, we are being changed, metamorphosis, from one degree of glory into the other. Son, that's discipleship right there, is it not? Well, His destiny, number one, in continuing sanctification. And then finally, and I close on time, maybe a little ahead of time, Y'all mark this down. You remember, you remember them phone companies, how a phone company used to be? You bought a plan, and if you didn't use all your minutes this month, they rolled over. It was called rollover minutes. You remember that? Well, somebody mark this down. If I get through early, I want rollover minutes, all right, <laughs> for next Sunday. Here we go. Notice what it is. His, his purpose, our essential destiny, number one, in continuing sanctification, but number two, in culminating salvation. Because... I think the mountaintop experience gives us insight into who we will be. Because see, this is our destiny. This is your destiny as a child of God. It's what the Bible talks about. And my one contribution to systematic theology was under the tutelage of Dr. James Leo Garrett at Southwestern. I wrote a paper one day that bought me a ticket. I was invited to his office. Son, that's almost like going to the mountaintop, you hear? Nobody else was asked. He said, come in here and talk to me about this paper you wrote because, well, he just said, come on in, let's talk. Here's what I postulated. I postulated that eschatologically, the body that you and I are going to have, because the Bible, you know... You're going to have a body between the time you die and the time of the second coming. The Bible never talks about us being disembodied spirits. We have a body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think the type of body that we're going to have between our death and the time the Lord comes back and culminates it and wraps it all up is going to be similar to the body that Jesus had between the between time He rose from the dead and His ascension. Do you remember that body? Oh man, it was so cool. He had physical form. They recognized him, but he had the ability to step through a wall whoop, where there wasn't a door, <laughs> where there wasn't a window. I think that's the type of body we're going to have. But the other type of body that I think we're going to get is our glorified body after he comes back and wraps it all up. Son, that's when there's real metamorphosis take place. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be a lot of ugly ducklings turned into beautiful swans. You hear me? That's what's going to happen. And, and, and that type of body is probably going to be the type of body that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration that was radiant and glowing. And it, even his, 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 his robe was glowing. It was so radiant. But now notice what it is that Paul says. And, and here is what he's going to do for you based on what he started at Calvary's cross because he who began a good work in you, get this, will complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when it all culminates. That's when you finally step into your inheritance. You finally become what He intended you to be. That's when your outward appearance is congruent with your inner essence. That's when it's all finished. And then we just spend eternity with Him. Here's how Paul describes it. Let me see if I can describe it for you. Then I want to read to you what John says about it. Paul says, in that day, hey... He says, in that day, this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal, this mortality must put on immortality. And John says this, as Jamie Baker read this morning, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Did you hear that? In essence, you are in here. In essence, you are the children of God. Listen to what else he said. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. 
because we're in this continuing sanctification deal. But check it out. We know that when He appears, we will be, look, like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Thank the good God of heaven. Huh? No more appendicitis. No more leukemia. No more male pattern baldness. Nothing but glory. But here's the only question. Man, is that going to be culture shock because we're not in the Word already moving in that direction today? Because see, in continuing sanctification, the Word is transforming us day by day from one degree of glory to another. It'll be no shock for those folk when the trumpet sounds. And Paul says, and the trump will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's when this perishable shall put on imperishable. That's when this mortality shall put on immortality. That's when death will be swallowed up into life. Listen, mountaintop experiences, they're great. But Peter says they're nothing like what you can get by having your nose in the book on a regular basis. You'll be transformed because he who began a good work in you will complete it. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that there's nothing that compares to it. And Father, I pray today that we would do just as we have seen take place, that this word would transform us, metamorphosis would take place and change us from one degree of glory into another. God, I thank you for those folk that are sitting right here today under the sound of my voice on these soft chairs that have been born again. And God, they've been in the book and they look nothing like they did two months ago. Nothing like they did two years ago. God, thank you for giving us that testimony and confirmation that your word does exactly what it says it'll do. I pray for those who are here today that never have been born again. They know nothing of having your seed within them, having your divine nature within them, and they've not been transformed at all. I pray today, God, that you will work a miracle in their life, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and they've heard today that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I pray today would be the day where you give them that invitation where you call them apart and you change them for your glory and for their good. I pray for those whom you're speaking to, God, about serious discipleship and continuing sanctification, whether it's through being part of a sending church like Grace or whether it's taking a step into biblical ministry, whatever it is you are calling us to do, whatever your word has confirmed and commanded, God, may we do it for your glory and for our good. Help us be faithful this day. Change us from one degree of glory into another. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I'll be right here on the front row. If the Lord has said something to you today and there's a decision you need to make, there's a direction in which you need to step, I'll be right here. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to help you get there. If God said anything to you, you be faithful as our guy.